people are still interested in buying homes, but the inventory is, you know, non-existent. Those algorithms that Zillow uses in order to create this estimate, you got to use data to do it, right? But that data is pre-crisis data. That data is in the before times, you know? You need the human um, to kind of think about what's happening. You're listening to the Real Estate Sessions podcast. I'm your host, Bill Risser, General Manager of U.S. Sales and Marketing for Rate My Agent a digital marketing platform allowing you to leverage the power of your verified reviews. Listen in as I interview leaders in the industry, getting their backstories and their journey to the world of real estate. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 261 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for telling a friend. Today, I'm going a different route. Today, we're talking to Skylar Olson. Skylar is with climatecheck.com. It's a brand new company that's out there that's allowing property owners to see the, a 30-year outlook on what climate change may do to their property. Uh, Brad Inman's a part of this team as well, uh, and they're doing some really cool stuff. And so I can't wait to talk to her about all of that and more. Uh, so let's get started. Skylar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited to chat with you. I, I actually got a note from Brad Inman and said, I've got someone you should talk to. And it's about this project that we're doing and we're going to talk a lot about climate check. Yeah. But before we get there, you know, I love to find out first of all where people grew up because it's, sure. it's I get to learn so much about our country in, yeah. these, in these episodes. So how about so yeah. you live in Seattle? Is that uh, is that are you a Pacific Northwest native? No, no, no. Though I you know at this point I think I've lived in Seattle for the longest period of time. So in many ways if someone says, you know, where are you from? I'm very happy to say Seattle. Um especially because, you know, the idea of where are you from? I'm from, you know, I'm from a lot of places. My family are kind of chronic entrepreneurs, but also, you know, heavily <laughs> educated. My dad's Midlife crisis took the form of getting his PhD, so we moved across country for that. Um, so if I was to run down the the where you're from answer, I generally say, well, um, born in Virginia, elementary school in the Bay Area of California. Um, then you know my my dad's you know midlife crisis. You know he wanted to go get his PhD. We moved to Columbus, Ohio, so I was there for you know the end of middle school and uh, the formative years of of high school. And then, you know, my dad got a tenure track position at Cal Poly. So I followed him to San Luis Obispo because then, you know, the Cal State system, there's really nothing better than having your dad be the professor and pay practically nothing uh, for a college education. But I also spent, you know, most of my summers growing up in, in West Virginia. You know, when you say you learn a lot about the country by talking to people from, from where they're from, I think I've been incredibly blessed to experience so many different places and so many different cultures, you know, to be able to know, you know, what is this America all about? Um, and, and also not only, you know, narrow and of, of where I want to be, which I think is, is the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Um, let's talk about a couple of those places, West Virginia, sure. what whereabouts in West Virginia? Yeah. Um, so Western West Virginia um, in the, in, you know, up in, up in the hills. So Sinks Grove County, my grandmother had a 150 acre apple and peach orchard. She, she owned a fabric store. She, you know, um, did a lot of different things over the course of, of her life. And the last stint of her entrepreneurialism, they bought a, they bought an orchard and she ran that orchard with, um, 
uh, first my grandfather and then after he passed with her new husband for 30 years and ran it up until she was 75. Would you go back there and work it? Oh, yeah. In the summers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nothing builds character uh, quite like being in those raspberry bushes or picking peaches or working in the kitchen, you know, peeling everything to make jam. And um, no, it was it was actually some of my it was one of my favorite things to do. I was the grandkid that did it the most often. I remember the first year I went there with um, my cousin and my sister and they did not go back. But I went back uh, many summers. I it's a West Virginia will always have such a wonderful place in my heart. You know, the people there, you know, so friendly and there's just such a different sense of time, you know, when you're on an orchard and you're, you know, after the end of a big, long, hard day, you take your folding chairs down to the creek, you know, put your feet in and, you know, read a book with grandma. I mean, that's, that's a childhood. And and it's a creek. It it's a, a creek. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and by the end of the summer, you know, I clearly don't have a West Virginia accent, but by the end of summer, you know, it'd be just fall out of my mouth. Are you looking for a yellow or a white peach? You know, and then that's just (laughs) enough time. Yeah. Uh, So Columbus, can I assume Ohio state then? That was the, uh, absolutely. That's, Oh, that's great. So your two dad gets, gets his PhD to Ohio state. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, And then San Luis Obispo for those people that haven't been there listening to this, it is a beautiful part of California. Oh yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, let's see. Okay. So my college years involved weekends, hopping on my bike and riding, you know, 15 miles to the beach through, you know, gorgeous hills and kind of hanging out there or, you know, going wine tasting with my parents. So my you know, 21st birthday was my parents drove me around in a van and, you know, a few of my friends in the back and we went wine tasting. I mean, it's a, it's incredible. It's an incredible place. It's incredibly beautiful. You know, as, so I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old and I very frequently, as you can imagine, think about how awesome it would be if my mom lived near me, you know, to help and watch the kids. But it's hard to ask them to do that because, gosh, I love having a home base in San Luis Obispo. Why would I ever want to give that up because of how kind of awesome that place is? Um, and I still have a lot of friends down there and really enjoy enjoy kind of going back down and getting a giant sandwich at High Street Jelly and you know, going wine tasting. It's really about the wine. It's it's the new Napa, maybe, is the way that I think about it. In, in today's world, you can kind of live anywhere you want if you really think about it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I love that. You, you have a PhD in economics. Yeah. Uh, that, that sounds, that is so impressive. And I want to know, while you're in high school living yeah. in San Luis Obispo, was that on your radar? You know, I guess sort of no. Yes and no. I mean, so one, when, so my dad got his PhD when I was in high school. I watched that happen. It's one of the few times I saw my dad, you know, question the decisions he's made. You know, those that have PhDs, we jokingly sometimes uh, maybe not even affectionately call them permanent head damage, right? Um, It looked hard. It looked hard. And instead of thinking to myself, like, oh, that's so hard. I won't do that. I think I, you know, my dad's in many ways my hero. You know, I think I saw that and thought like, oh, well, then it's something worth doing. Um, And in terms of, you know, economics, my dad is not economics. He's a lean manufacturing guy. But economics in high school, I did catch the bug in high school. I took a AP class. It was supposed to be, you know, the hardest class in the you know, uh, at the school and something 
about it clicked. You know, I think I've always loved thinking about what makes people tick. So, you know, you might think psychology, but economics is this wonderful approach of, you know, systems thinking to be like, well, this person exists, you know, in this environment, and there are incentives that this person has, and they have limitations, like their income and the prices. And if you can get the system you can better understand what's going to happen if you shock it, right? Like say the coronavirus and something crazy happens, you know, how will people respond? And, you know, I just, I, I think I'm, I like the idea of, of knowing, I think it makes me feel, or at least having an idea, right? Cause no one really knows anything, <laughs> but I think economics provides this wonderful lens and I did get hooked pretty early. And then if you think about what happens to you when you're going to college and your dad's one of the professors and you know all of your professors, you know, because you see them at your dad's happy hours. And, you know, it just they start to take care of you and they make sure that you walk down their path. Um, so my professors made sure I was taking statistics and math and um, and things like that. But no, for a hot minute there, uh, you know, the majors I was you know, going back and forth in between, it was it was journalism or economics, journalism or economics, journalism okay. or economics, and and I chose economics, and it's yeah, and then I went straight through. So, so many years of college, so many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so you you make a change, your major and your PhD work all happen up at UW. So you you're yeah. a husky now, right? Yep, absolutely. Uh, still identify as a husky, I think, or you know, how does that work because yeah. of the two schools? Yeah, no, I think I, you know, my heart is probably in Cal Poly. So if I was to claim anything, I think I, I guess I'm a Mustang. Plus my dad, yeah, my dad's it's all in the family, you know, and everything. But no, moving up to Seattle, going to UW, um, absolutely, you know, a big part of my development. And, and, you know, no regrets, no regrets. Permanent head damage is, is absolutely a joke, but, you know, it set me, you know, getting that kind of a degree in economics and that kind of focus on data work um, makes you highly employable. And academia, you know, it became very clear wasn't for me, <laughs> wasn't going to be for me, but getting that background, uh, totally worth it. What what percentage of people that go that route and get that PhD stay in academia, become professors mm. and do that? Is there a number out there that you think? Is it half? Yeah, is it oh, that's more? interesting. No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't know the number. But what's interesting about that part of the process is, one, when I was getting my PhD in economics, there weren't master's degrees in economics. PhD was the route you took and you got a master's degree along the way. And, you know, if you see out in the wild, you know, back then, you know, people with master's degrees in economics, you just kind of knew they didn't, they didn't, you know, finish. Right. Um, now there are many more master's programs in economics because I think it's a, it's a great lens to have and understand, you know, well, all the data that all these companies have and all the answers that you can find in that data to help, you know, make profitable decisions or, you know, as a consultant or, or whatever else. And so it's much more normal, I think, now to not go in academia. But then I think it was much more a standard path. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing to think about it is you're surrounded by people who made the choice to go into academia. And so, you know, in many ways, that's your initial assumption. I think you know, halfway through the program, I thought going into industry was failure, right? It it meant I didn't make 
I didn't, it meant that I, you know, I didn't successfully get through the path I had expected, right? Which is I'm going to become a professor and I'm going to, you know, teach, uh, teach college, you know, to, I'm going to teach these things to other people and I'm going to do this long horizon research and add to the body of knowledge and, you know, things like that. And towards the end of the process, those started to be, you know, long, like just take the idea of long horizon research. I mean, in academia, you do work, you try and get it published. It gets, you know, it takes years to publish. You're already using really old data because you're not at a company, right? You're not at a company with real time data in the now. You get the data sources that are available, you know, or you beg or you plead or you write grants. So it's always old data. It don't get published for a really long time. I needed immediacy. I needed to feel like I was making a difference, that I was studying something that mattered, that I was helping real people understand the world. And, um, and I couldn't, I couldn't go into academia. It was just, it wasn't, that's not what academia kind of felt like anymore. It felt, it felt like you would just be doing work and a few people would read it and you're cutting at, you know, you're advancing the body of, of knowledge and you're, you're getting more and more and more and more targeted. But, you know, I think when you look around and you think like, gosh, real world people are not using what economists have known for 30 years, right? Like surely, surely I can make more of a difference by taking what's already known, applying it um, and advancing it using kind of sexy, sexy data sets at companies. So I did, I did that. So let's, there is this one company that had access to a lot of data. Mm. that you ended up working for. Yeah. So, let's talk about your path to Zillow. Yeah. You know, I used to talk about how Zillow rescued me from academia by offering access to a super sexy data set. So, you know, just really the largest and richest housing data set in the nation. And because this is how that works, the world um, was at Zillow. And what they were doing then and now, right, is to use that data to explain how housing markets work, which are the center to so much of what we experience, right? Place is so important important to our economic outcomes. And it was an incredible opportunity to understand housing markets, do that work, and talk about it to real people. So real people through media, um, but also, you know, the housing professionals that interacted with real people and had to help explain to real people what's happening um, and why and how and what to do about it. I mean, it was just the impact was incredible. And Zillow was so unique in that they weren't asking me to figure out how to make Zillow more money. They were asking me to figure out what a real person needed to know. And it benefited Zillow still, right? Zillow had a lot of goodwill from providing that kind of information. They got a lot of media. They got a lot of press. You know, Zillow's original advertising strategy was not to spend on advertising. It was to hire people like me to do the research and then talk about what Zillow knew in a provocative way that, um, you know, media would want to cover. It, I mean, gosh, how gorgeous, you know, how gorgeous. What a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Was the work you did always kind of, you know, outward facing towards uh, the yeah. consumers or the real estate professionals? Was it ever work that the the, the economists as ill are doing that's internal? That yeah. is kind of looking at how are we going to maximize certain things? Because look, yeah. it's a very successful company and they, oh, they've yeah. done a great job. So oh, yeah. it had to be, there's, there's two, it's a two-way street, yeah. right? Zillow absolutely started to build that team that did that work. You know, just like Amazon has a stable of, you know, I think over 200 economists now 
to answer that kind of work. So profitability decisions and, you know, in order to provide internal forecasts that are, you know, even more targeted for certain uses, Zillow had that too. Um, But as the Zillow economic research team grew, I continued to focus on the outward audience. So I continued to work more closely with marketing and public relations teams and also to outside, you know, research centers. So I kind of helped you know, define and create Zillow's um, data sharing programs with academia, with government organizations. And actually over time too, a bigger and bigger part of um, our outward facing research was towards policymakers in order to generate that goodwill, right? Um, but also, you know, how do you have conversations about homelessness? Like what what drives it? What causes it? And to kind of make that that impact. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you're aware that, that Zillow... In the real estate space, you know, realtors in general, it, it's a definitely a mixed bag as far as what people think about it. Yeah. You know, so er, well, so early on, a big part of the job was actually traveling around the country and talking to real estate agents about how to talk about this estimate, right? What it is, what it isn't, what is the agent's place in understanding it? And, and in some ways, that was kind of just talking about, I, I guess, statistics, you know, to, you know, how can you understand this error rate, right? What is, you know, this estimate cannot know with perfection um, what the value of a house is. I guess there's the potential one day, if you had photos of every home, if you, you know, built those computer vision models, you know, in order to really be attuned to quality. And, um, and if you had perfect information about, you know, the power lines outside, and, you know, all these things, like, maybe you could make a estimate with, with, you know, really, 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 like really, 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 really exceptional accuracy. But right now, it that's incredibly hard to do still. And the value of a human being to use this estimate as a tool and then go visit the home and look at, you know, the je ne sais quoi of the foyer and that light coming through, you know, the, the kitchen window, that stuff matters. And computers are still as smart as, you know, the, the people are who are building these machine learning and AI algorithms are. And it's so smart and it's so cool and it's very exciting technology. It's just, it's still in many ways pretty dumb, you know, and, and a human brain can add the nuance. That's pretty important. I mean, take take this environment too. So we're, you know, okay, so COVID is happening. <laughs> Everyone's working from home. People are still interested in buying homes, but the inventory is, you know, non-existent. Those algorithms that Zillow uses in order to create this estimate, you got to use data to do it, right? But that data is pre-crisis data. That data is in the before times, you know? You need the human to kind of think about what's happening, think about what you're seeing every day, how many people are showing up to open house. Well, clearly not open houses, you know what I mean? But like who's who's attending the virtual ones or like how many phone calls are people getting and and to try and figure it out. So it's it's hard. Data is inherently backward looking sometimes. Data is in, inherently dirty. And, and the human the human brain is still an important part of the picture. Yeah. And so that was like a part of my job too, is to kind of help be that bridge between kind of what the estimate is and what Zillow was trying to do there. And then, um, and then the housing professionals who could use those tools. Yeah. Wow. And kind of w- understand them. Mm-hmm. You recently left Zillow and I think mm-hmm. you started your own consultancy. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so in leaving Zillow, like, so if, as I've already kind of talked about, right. Like what really motivates me is to do something obviously impactful, but that real people are worried about. And what are the, what can I answer um, in order to, I guess, to help 
but also like I kind of want to change what um, I kind of want to change what people think of when they think of economics. And so I, you know, right out the door, I created something called Reimagine Economics. And I I wanted the reimagining to be twofold. One, you know, what Zillow did by saying, okay, I've got this huge data set and I can answer some incredible questions with that data set. And in a time when, so imagine at the time then it was the great recession, right? And the housing bubble and collapse and, you know, um, and at that time, it was, well, I can use what I know because I have access to this crazy data set in order to clarify an immediate problem, right? I can clarify what's happening at a time of incredible uncertainty. And the company can then, you know, build credibility and reputation and trust in front of its audience by doing that, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's a huge opportunity for more companies to have public-facing data programs that can be beneficial for both them um, and their audience, right? We can answer really important questions and we can build trust as, as companies in, in front of our audience at a time when, let's face it, information is at an incredible premium. Right now, we're in like the biggest, oh my gosh, the most dramatic recession ever in recorded history and um, and a incredibly, unpre- the word unprecedented is silly now. It's just like, I mean, it's just so in an unprecedented <laughs> crisis, health crisis, um, you know, what can we know? I think building more bridges between people that have the data and the people that need the information, the everyday people is is incredibly crucial. So that's reimagining what companies can do with their data. And then the other part of it is reimagining economics. So I can't tell you how many people I run across where I say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm an economist. And, and you know, the first thing they say is either there are two things, either, um, uh, oh, what stock should I buy? Um, in which case I don't know I have no idea that's not what I study you know I think people equate economics with with finance instead of economics with a social science that's trying to understand how people make decisions within the context of the world they live and then uh, the other thing you always hear is oh god that was my least favorite class in college (laughs) Um, which is a shame it's a shame because it was the class that you took that tried to help you navigate the world and understand why and how it worked, right? Um, right? Not just, right, to be a better voter or a good citizen, right? But, you know, to kind of understand, gosh, so much. I mean, if you wanted to start a small business, understanding, you know, the markets that, you know, those businesses will operate in could be incredibly crucial to do, you know, whatever. It's, it's amazing. And I actually, um, a buddy of mine just went on paternity leave and his, he's a professor um, at a university, and the university approved his paternity leave, but didn't get him a replacement. Right? It's, these are crazy times. These are really, really crazy times. Right? So it's it's hard to know what to do and how to do it. And you know, some things I think just get you know through the clock. So um, my buddy did this incredible thing. He just reached out to his community of of economists, and he said like, Hey, do you want to teach a week? And I got uh, I got perfect competition, which or excuse me, long run, perfect competition in the long run. Right. So. okay, And that's the part of economics where um, that's what economists and free market lovers drool over. Right. This idea that in the long run, people are going to chase profits. Right. You're going to enter a market if people are making money and if people are losing money like right now, people are going to have to leave markets. But that's the self-healing mechanism. Right. I've got this incredible, say, you know, spike in demand for masks, face masks, right, at a time of the coronavirus that initially increases the price on masks. Mask makers make money 
right? Now you've got people on the outside that say, oh gosh, look, I can make money by making masks. And boom, they enter a market, they make more masks, we have more masks, prices come back down. Um, and that's the that's that's a market. They're gorgeous. They're beautiful. Um, I think the challenge is, is that if you forget, you know, back from way back in the day that that, you know, Econ 201 class, all the assumptions that you need in place to make the market, you know, be the, you know, to end in a result that's best for everyone, right? You need easy entry and exit. You need great competition in that way, right? You you need full information. You need everyone to be able to know what prices are out there. You need uh, everyone to bear the costs of their decisions or bear all the benefits, right? And that's when you get markets that have these, you know, gorgeous outcomes. And so it was a really wonderful opportunity to kind of be able to talk to people at that stage, you know, in their understanding about the world and say, you know, when I have market failures, markets are gorgeous. What can I do in the market in order to get to a, a better place to help people? How can we get more information? That's, you know, my shtick, obviously, uh, to make better decisions in the market so that the markets can be the gorgeous things that everyone wants them to be. I don't know, maybe I got a little enmeshed no. here I love, but um, no, I think it's a critical, I think economics is a <laughs> gorgeous lens. I think, you know, and it's an, imp I just, it's a, it's a purpose. It's a purpose. Yeah. There, there is passion pouring out of you, Skylar. <laughs> I mean, sexy, gorgeous, brilliant. I don't think I've ever heard those words <laughs> used, used in connection with economics before today, which is yeah. awesome. It's yeah, great. It's, it's great. Economics <laughs> well, is awesome. <laughs> so I mentioned yeah. in the intro that Brad Inman uh, introduced yeah. me to you. He said, you've got to talk to Skylar. Sure. She's, she's really amazing and brilliant. And, and loves economics like no one else. No. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. let's talk about what you're, you're part of a team um, that includes Brad Inman that created a new, um, I'll call it a company, right? It's, in, it's called Climate Check. And let's talk about Climate Check. Talk about the team too. I mean, uh, there are a ton of wait, uh, permanent head damage employees. Yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So early on and, you know, leaving Zillow and kind of trying to figure out like, okay, what is, what is, where is it that, you know, we need to reimagine economics, you know, and, and use data to help people make better decisions. I think climate change was an obvious major challenge confronting the globe everywhere. And I was very soon tipped off uh, about Brad Inman and what he was doing through, you know, other um, people at, at Zillow who had, you know, since left and, and formed new things. So the former head of Zillow PR, who, you know, it was like the Zillow playbook. And she says, hey, this is this is the right DNA. This is what um, you were looking for, right? In terms of where is a company who is trying to use data, all the squirrely data that's available, the hard to access stuff, the hard to figure out stuff, the stuff you need a bunch of permanent head damage in order to understand and cultivate, right? Who who needs these kinds of people to then talk about it to, to real world uh, people, right? People who really need this stuff in order to make better decisions. And they're making this new thing called Climate Check. So Climate Check, you know, just launched a couple of weeks ago, though they've been working on it for, you know, two years to get all this data into place. So I'm, I guess I'm, you know, jumping in um, to a, uh, you know, a boat that was, you know, already built. Um, but I'm going to try and, you know, be a part of figuring out where we sail this thing, which is really exciting and, um, and really fun. Um, but yeah, the team, you know, so Brad Inman, um, you know, and, and his son actually, uh, Cal Inman does a lot of uh, real estate development, right? And so 
Cal Inman's, you know, out there trying to figure out about his own portfolio of homes. At the same time, he starts teaching at Berkeley and he starts meeting all these climate scientists. He sees the data and the understanding, but he sees how hard it is for real people to access, right? For his own properties, right? How do I understand the coming risk on, you know, this set, my portfolio? And then thinking about, you know, his sister buying homes or, you know, other people buying homes. Gosh, they should have access to this information too. And Brad Inman, you know, as well, Inman News, right? So this journalism background, this DNA of providing information to people who need it and not just those maybe that can hire a fancy consultant, you know, to figure out what their risk is on their portfolio, because you better believe there are companies out there doing that right now, right? But, you know, providing that information to, um, you know, the, the, uh, the big banks, the, you know, the big REITs, the, yeah. um, you know, the big insurance companies, the reinsurance companies to understand the coming risk uh, to U.S. properties and those portfolios. I think Comichek's really the only one who said, I'm going to put my eyes on the consumer. I'm going to go after, I'm going to go after the consumer and provide this kind of risk information to, to everybody. Um, and don't get us wrong. I think we also want to go after the REITs and the banks and, you know, provide information to, you know, anyone who needs better understanding about the risk to properties in the coming years, because it's, it's real, right? But how do we do it in a way like we were talking about that real people can understand what we're talking about, not be alarmed and, um, you know, buy it are instead empowered by it to add resiliency to their homes to, you know, make better decisions. Um, because that's the real challenge that confronts us as well is what are we going to do about it? Um, and putting the risk at your doorstep, right? Getting real individuals to understand what the risk means to them, I think is one of the best ways that we can actually enact change, right? It's hard to ask, you know, a, a mom, you know, I'll use me as an example, maybe if I wasn't, you know, a climate um, scientist at this point, but, you know, just a typical mom, it's hard to ask that mom who's, gosh, at times like these, buried by their small children and, you know, remote work, you know, or like whatever you're trying to do, it's hard to ask them to care about the icebergs, right? It's hard to ask them to care about something so far away. Um, and that's scary because we need action now, but I can, I can get them to care if I can present them with the information where they are. Say, this is your local risk. This is how climate change will affect you and your decisions and your property and your home. So on climatecheck.com, you just type in your address and it'll give you easy to understand risk information. Um, and from brokers, right? Like we have, you know, the free, we have, we're, we're creating widgets, you know, that you can, you can put this information on your home listings, right? I think we would like there to be this kind of information at every listing in the US and then people like me to help you know, real people understand it, what it means and what it doesn't mean, how it could impact your decisions, how it might not, and and what to do about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's super cool. I, I ran it on, on property I to, just to check it out. And it was, yeah. it was super cool. A uh, report came back really quick. Like I'm, I'm thinking about it, talking to say a room full of realtors about this topic. Do, do you see, do you see ultimately a way that they're going to, um, you know, have access to the tool that they're going to, they're going to just pull their own reports and do use this tool much like like a realtor today might do with, you know, kind of pulling a report on any claims against the, the homeowner's insurance. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I do see that absolutely in the future. You know, I think even right now, um, so that, well, so there is some great kind of research being done by uh, the Yale Center for Climate Change Communication, right, who really focuses on the idea of what is the sentiment around about 
climate change, right? And we're at a situation where it's actually a pretty small minority of people who think that this isn't real, you know, and actually a majority of people believe that not only is climate change real, but it's going to impact them personally, it's going to affect you. And, you know, if that's the case, then agents should expect that more and more buyers are going to start asking questions, you know, they're going to, in, in some places, I think the questions are going to be obvious, right? If you're on the coast, it's like, well, is this going to flood? If you're inland, you know, even in a place that's, you know, flooded more recently, because we've seen so many more and more and more storms happen, more and more snowmageddons, you know, am I going to experience roof damage, right? Like, what, what are my risks at this property? I think the conversation is going to come to you, whether or not you kind of want to have it better be prepared. Um, and to be able to, pay, you know, kind of provide certainty to the buyer or clarity to the buyer or like offer trust and understanding about a topic that's kind of fraught um, and and difficult, right? And also unclear, right? A lot of this data traditionally was stuck in academia. It's stuck in, you know, these big consulting firms. It's, you know, it, it's stuck with the people who can who can pay to do it, you know, but you got to be prepared for the conversation. So you deserve to have an answer or a way to talk about it, you know, with people. I think eventually this kind of idea will become very, very normal that you would pull a climate check rating, um, you know, before you bought any home, just like the bank would pull the same information before they decide whether or not to give you a mortgage, right? So I think you just, you know, more and more, especially in areas where we're seeing the wildfires, where we're seeing floods, you know, forget FEMA and the one out of 100 years, you know, we've seen floods over the past several years that are once in every thousand years you would expect to happen, and they're happening more frequently than you would ever like. Um, and it's a, we're going to start having this conversation, better be prepared to how to do it. How do you support your customer? You know, I think it's, it's a big deal. Are you optimistic that, that we humans <laughs> can do the right things now to, to help our, our kids and grandkids down the road? Yeah, I'm well, so I'm always optimistic. You know, I, um, I, I, what, what, how do I even characterize that? I mean, I guess I'm. I will always and forever be a believer in, you know, human spirit and coming together, even when it feels hard. Um, and I think one of the reasons why I will always believe is because in the long arc, you know, of time, it feels like we always do figure it out, right? So in his, you know, historically, there's these great, you know, debates in the past about whether or not we'd be able to feed the globe if, you know, population grew so very quickly. and you know, and, and the reality is, is we've been able to figure out technology as, you know, uh, collectively, right, as, as humans to, to answer the call to those problems. And there are just such incredible science going on right now about, you know, potential solutions, right? I, I don't, I'm not to, I guess, plug something totally unrelated, but I, I watched Kiss the Ground. I don't know if anyone's seen that one. If anyone should watch that documentary, because it will fill you with hope. I mean, just the power of soil to sequester carbon is outrageous, you know, and you can draw down, we can draw down, we just have to all get behind it. So I can see the nihilism coming from the idea of like, well, you know, how are we going to get humans to decide to do these things, right, to pass the laws, right, if there are so many barriers standing in our place. But that's why I'm here talking about, you know, climate change. That's why I want to bring climate risk to individuals so that if individuals care 
their um, representatives care, their representatives will start, you know, enacting the laws that we need to happen in the next coming, you know, in, in a short period of time in order to avoid the worst. And I have to be optimistic because I have a two-year-old and I have a four-year-old and I loved working, you know, outside at the orchard. I don't know that I would have loved working outside at the orchard or even if those fruits and vegetables would have grown if it was common to have a hundred degree days, you know, or, or that kind of heat. You know, I just, I got to believe we can do this because I want my kids to experience what I've experienced and to love what I've loved about all the places that I've lived, you know? And I think the real challenge is what can we do? What do we have to do and how soon do we have to do it? Which is really yesterday and it's now and it's tomorrow um, to make it so that people can live in the woods in California um, and not suffer fires. What do we have to do so that you can live in Florida and not, well, you know, a lot of Florida is really already, you know, flooding quite frequently. So that's, that's maybe a rough example. Um, but inland Florida is not, you know, um, and, um, what do we have to do to preserve the places that people clearly want to live? We want to live by the coast. There's still a premium on the coast. It's just in areas that are future sea level rise it is starting to slow down as people recognize that these places might, might go away. So how do we save them? Um, and I think too, when I think about the challenge ahead of us, we absolutely need solutions at scale. So we're starting to have these conversations and we're putting it forward, but you know, don't be nihilist. There's absolutely things that you can do in order to be more resilient, even at home. So if you love, you know, live in an area that is expected to get frequent flooding, I mean, maybe the most dramatic step that you can do is put your house on risers. Um, but even beyond that, you know, regrading around your home, you know, uh, better drainage, um, you know, there's sealants, there are, you know, all sorts of kind of smaller from the big to the little that you can do to keep your home, to keep your community. Um, and then let's start doing that. You know, let's let's start doing those things. Um, and I can't think of a better way to start incentivizing those actions towards resiliency than through the housing market um, and a better understanding about the risks that climate change poses to them um, so that we can yeah, start making our whole communities resilient. Skylar, you, you are amazing. Your passion is so cool. Uh, this has been wonderful, but I've, I've gone way over time with you. I want to ask you the same question I've asked every guest. Now, most of my guests are kind of more deeply entrenched in the world of real estate, but everybody gets, everybody gets the question. And that is, yeah. if you, you could give one piece of advice to a new agent just getting started, what would it be? Yeah, yeah. I would say get ready for the conversation because it's, you know, it's, coming to you. Some of your buyers, maybe not all of them, you know, but some of them are going to want to talk about it. Um, and you as the agent, there is nothing more valuable than a good agent. I mean, I'm, you know, this housing economist at Zillow for eight years and every, every single time I've bought a home, I have absolutely used an agent and absolutely, I've written love letters to them about how, you know, helpful you are in navigating that process. You know, people are going to start to feel more and more uncertain about the decisions that they're making in some areas in the U.S. And an agent is going to be a critical frontline person that has that conversation. And getting prepared to have it can mean arming yourself with information or positioning yourself as someone who can kind of help um, understand how to position a, a home for sale. You know, if 
there is climate risk? How do you um, help guide a buyer to a more resilient choice? How do you help a homeowner, um, you know, add resiliency to their home to get ready for sale? You know, you're going to be front lines on this one. Um, And getting prepared is probably the best advice that I can say. And it doesn't mean, you know, go get permanent head damage. Um, It doesn't mean like read a bunch of papers on climate science. You know, it can be as simple as use a a tool like climate check, you know, and kind of get, you know, don't be afraid of it, you know, get get in front of it. Skylar, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? I would, you know, reach out. I have got a few emails now at this point. Um, So let's Skylar at reimagine-economics.com is probably going to be a good one there. Also, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn is a a great way to find me. If you want information about climate change or climate check, uh, the widget that you can put on your listings, uh, go to info at climatecheck.com. That's a great email to reach out to in order for for more climate change information. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Skylar, thank you so much for your time. This was um, just fantastic. And it was really fun to hear you talk about a topic, like you said, that most college students hate. And you turned it into something that maybe, maybe there's one parent that's going to make their kids listen to you All right. and, and you, yeah. you've converted. That would be another. great. That would be great. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Sessions podcast. To leave a review or a rating, go to ratethispodcast.com slash RE sessions. You can also subscribe to the podcast at your favorite podcast listening app. Finally, you can go to the realestatesessions.com and subscribe to our email newsletter and be notified whenever a new episode is released. Hey.